You're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. chapter 28, verse 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then the prophet answers, them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible. Tell your friend about this study. Tell your pastor about this study. Let's get into God's Word, line upon line. We are up to Acts chapter 20. I just want to go back to Acts 19, and then we'll go right into Acts 20. It's going to be an interesting uh, chapter. It's quite an intense chapter, and uh, I think you'll, you'll find we'll get a lot out of this. So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pause before you, and we just want to give you thanks, Lord, for your great mercy. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to study your word and to study it line by line and to understand that instructions are here a little and there a little, and that by taking the full counsel of your word and going through it line by line and not neglecting it, Father, we can come to a richer understanding. And so we pray you'll bless our study, bless those that are tuning in, and we just thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We ask this in the mighty name of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in Acts chapter 19, we were there last week, it ended with a bit of a a bit of a, of a tumult, and we'll just read that to pick it up and, and, and read into chapter 20. He says in verse 26 of 19, he says, Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, uh, what the Roman province of Asia, where we call Turkey today, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods, which are made with hands. So Paul's ministry was very effective in turning people away from idolatry, and they're very concerned about this. So that not only this, our craft, is in danger to be set at nothing, but also them that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed. 
whom all Asia and the world worships. And notice that it's not just Asia that worships Diana, but they acknowledge that the whole world worships Diana. Now, that means that the world speaking different languages, they're not going to refer to her as Diana all around the world. Uh, she's going to be known as Ishtar. She's going to have multiple names. Uh, but it is the same deity that they're worshipping throughout the world, and these people understand that. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of anger and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And then we'll just drop down to verse 34. But then when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So just for two hours they were just chanting this. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, You men of Ephesus, what man is there that knows not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshipper of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought here these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. So they're worried now about the Roman authorities and what will happen with the senior Roman authorities. If, if there's all this confusion, there's no legitimate reason to explain it. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. And so after all this confusion and settling the people down, now we come in to Acts chapter 20. And so it, it reads, And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. So he's leaving Ephesus now and he's on his way to Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. So going through Macedonia, back through the Philippi, and other places in Macedonia, he really encouraged them, gave them a lot of exhortation, perhaps realizing he may not see them again, and just really wanted to make sure they stay uh, faithful to the word which he had preached. And now he's come into Greece. And there he abode three months, so three months in Greece. And when the Jews laid wait for him, so they were calculating how they can kill him, and so when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia Sopater of Berea. So this person, one of the Jews uh, in Berea, um, that decided to follow him. And of the Thessalonians, and remember the Jews in Berea were more noble than the ones in Thessalon Thessalonica, but there was one here of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, so two of them here from Thessalonia, and 
Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and of Asia, Tychicus, or Tychicus, probably Tychicus, and Trophimus. So this is the party that's with him. These going before tarried for us at Troas. And so the us, Luke is the companion to Paul. And so they went ahead and they were waiting for Paul and Luke. And we, again, that is, Luke is including himself with the party. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. Now, let's not read over verse 6 too quickly. Paul, Paul is the, the, or Luke is documenting the journeys of Paul, but he's including himself. He says in verse 5, they going before, that party that he uh, declared in verse 4, they went before and they waited for us. Us is Luke and Paul at Troas. And now that they're all together in verse 6, and we, Luke is including himself in the party. Why is this important? Because Luke was a Gentile. Luke was not a Jew. He was a Gentile grafted in to Israel. Now, as a Gentile, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, listen to what he says. And we sailed away from Philippi, listen to this, after the days of unleavened bread. The church, the, the church, the early church, is faithfully observing the holy days. So this notion that Christianity has done away with the holy days, Christianity is all about Sunday worship. And, and if you stop most Christians today and ask them about the days of unleavened bread, they have no idea what these days even are. And yet the early church observed them. There's no reason for Luke to talk about this if he and the party that he was with were not observing these days. So they were in Philippi, and they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Philippi. And after they observed the Days of Unleavened Bread, then they set sail. So they sailed away from Philippi after the Days of Unleavened Bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. So they stayed there, in, so it took them five days to get to Troas, and then they stayed there for seven days. Now, listen to verse 7. Because a lot of people will use verse 7 as justification for Christians observing Sunday worship. Verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart tomorrow, on the morrow, and continued until in his speech until midnight. So many will look at this and say, see, the early church now has switched from Sabbath to Sunday worship. And in fact, this verse is saying the exact opposite. Verse 7 of Acts 20 is confirming that the church, the early church, continues to keep the Holy Sabbath day. How do we know? Well, it's very hard when we look at the English, but we should be a little bit suspicious when we look at the English, because it says in the English, and upon the first day of the week. But why say we should be a little bit suspicious is because day is in italics. And when you see that, when you see in the English a word in the italic, what they're indicating to you is this is not in the original language. They're just inserting it to try to bring clarity. But often these translators, when they try to bring clarity, they are really um, bringing in their preconceived ideas. 
So they have prejudices, they have preconceived ideas, they have a theology that they think the word is saying. And so they're, they're helping you, but they're helping you to subscribe to their philosophy and their, their theology. So when we look at the original language, what the Greek actually says is endete mia ton sabaton. Endete mia ton sabaton. So if I were to translate the original Greek, it would say, uh, I would, would translate it, upon the first of the Sabbaths, ton sabaton. The, that, that is a genitive plural. So it is plural Sabbaths. Upon the first, the first belongs to the Sabbaths. Upon the first of the Sabbaths. So what is going on here? Uh, very clearly, this is a count that they're involved in. That there's, there's some sort of count that they're looking at. And, and we know that it's, it, the count that they're involved in is tied to the... Uh, it is tied to the Days of Unleavened Bread. So they finished observing the Days of Unleavened Bread, and now they're coming to the first of the Sabbaths. So this count of Sabbaths is somehow connected to the observance of Unleavened Bread. To understand what this is all about, we need to go back to Leviticus 23, where in Leviticus 23, all of the Lord's holy days are clearly outlined. So in fact, Leviticus 23 begins... And, and a lot of people miss this as well. Uh, Leviticus 23, verse 1. The, the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feasts, notice, of the Lord. So speak to the children of Israel about the feast of the Lord. He doesn't say speak to the children of Israel about the feasts of Israel. These are the feasts of the Lord. And he goes on to say, Which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Even these are my feasts. These feasts belong to the Lord, not just to Israel. They belong to the Lord. And then he begins to outline what these feast days are. And if you're not familiar with these feast days, you should study Leviticus 23. And if you need further help, if you want some understanding exactly the significance and the symbol, symbolic meaning of these days, you should write to us at info at cgi.org. Info at cgi.org and just ask for help understanding God's holy days and there's some literature that we can send to you but in outlining these holy days you'll see here that in Leviticus 23 uh, beginning in verse uh, 6 he explains the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread so you can't you have to be keeping the Passover to be keeping the days of unleavened bread. So he outlines in verse uh, 5 that on the 14th day of the month is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And so that's what the early church was observing. And that is abundantly clear. In fact, um, I'll just quickly go here, see if I can just show you this very quickly. In 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 5. Yes, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, um, there is this situation where they have uh, somebody in the church that is uh, committing a, a terrible sin. And he says, your glory in verse 6 is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So, so they are very sensitive to the notion of leaven. 
And he says in verse 7, Purge out of therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, even as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So again, Corinthian was a, Corinth was a mixed congregation, but mostly Gentile congregation. And he's telling them to purge out the old leaven, speaking spiritually of the sin that they're allowing in the congregation. He says that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. So what sense does this mean? Or what sense does this make if he's telling them to purge out the old leaven if they're already unleavened? So very clearly, the only way you can understand this passage is that he's telling them to purge out the spiritual leaven, that is sin, so that they can be a new lump, the same way they are physically unleavened. So they've come to the congregation, they've come to the service, having deleavened their homes, faithfully observing the days of unleavened bread. Now their homes are deleavened, but they still have leaven in the spiritual leaven in the congregation. So he's telling them purge out the old leaven to match the way they are physically unleavened. So here we see then in Leviticus 23 that they're to keep these days of unleavened bread for seven days. And then in verse 10 he says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give unto you, you shall reap the harvest thereof. You shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. And I, I can't, don't have the time to go into all the symbolic meaning of this, but this is a symbol of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So there's a Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread that must be identified. And on the day after that Sabbath, which will obviously be the first day of the week, the Sunday, what we call Sunday today, that's when this wave sheaf will be, will be waved. And he says, so he goes on then, that from this day is when they do the count. And he says, verse 15 of Leviticus 23, and you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath. So you find the Sabbath that, that occurs during the days of unleavened bread. You do the wave sheaf on the morrow after that Sabbath. And then there's a count that begins. And he says, you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath. From the day that you brought the sheaf, the sheaf of the wave offering, you will count seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow of, after the seventh Sabbath, shall you number 50 days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. And so that's where the name Pentecost comes from. Greek pente meaning 50, and cost meaning count. So Pentecost is the count of 50. So very important. So it's seven Sabbaths, but you're counting after the morrow of the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread, the Sunday. You're going to count seven Sabbaths, or 50 days, you're going to come to a Sunday. This is why Pentecost is always on a Sunday. And, and that's what they're doing here. They're counting seven Sabbaths. So don't, don't be too quick. When you read Acts 20 and verse 7, where the English translators read, and upon the first day of the week, assuming that it's Sunday, when in fact the Greek says, endete mia ton sabbaton, upon the first of the Sabbaths, so they've just finished keeping unleavened bread. They've identified the Sabbath during unleavened bread. And now they're counting seven Sabbaths because he is trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And the only way you can keep Pentecost 
is if you keep unleavened bread and Passover. And in fact, this whole book is based upon the early church keeping Pentecost, that they were gathered together in Acts 2 in one accord, in one place, according to the command of the Lord. And, they, and, and it says, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, meaning they were counting 50, and, and, and they were counting seven Sabbaths, and, and so they were in what's called this Feast of Weeks, and then the day finally fully came, and they are now observing Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit, and now we're reading throughout the whole book of Acts the, the, the workings of the Holy Spirit, demonstrating that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he continues to do his work through the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So upon the first of the Sabbaths, they've got to count seven, this is the first one. When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and he continued his speech until midnight. So this was a long sermon, and sometimes people get concerned about the length of sermons, but what is more important is the depth of the message. And Paul had a lot to say to them. He, he's concerned he may not see them again. He's got to make sure they get the full counsel here. And there were many lights in the upper chamber. And so Luke tells us about these lights, which were probably candles or, or kerosene lamps. And so and probably they're giving off some kind of uh, a gas, which I think is significant. Uh, so there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a young man named Eutychus being fallen into a deep sleep. And I think that's probably why. So it's late, uh, you know, uh, he's a young man, he needs his sleep. And uh, there's probably some gas in the air as well, which might, might be um, part of the cause for him to go into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, again, sometimes these messages are longer than others, and this was the case here. And as Paul was long preaching, Eutychus sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. So he might have fallen and broken his neck, who, who knows. And Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, trouble not yourselves for his life is in him. You could imagine the panic. So everybody's listening to Paul. He's probably making some really significant point. And then there's just this thump and crash. And you could imagine the, the panic and the crisis and then the boy is dead, and then Paul says, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. And when he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. So he continued with his message. And they brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted. So, so Luke is just telling us here, this was a moment of great rejoicing. Uh, they were not a little comforted. I mean, they were thrilled. Now, this we need to, again, uh, Luke is writing to Theophilus. And the purpose of his writing is for Theophilus to understand the ministry of the Apostle Paul and how the Apostle Paul is faithfully carrying out the, the instructions of the Lord Jesus. And in fact, that his ministry, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is mirroring the ministry of Jesus. If we go back to volume one of these two accounts that are written to Theophilus in Luke chapter seven and verse 12, we read where Luke writes about the Lord. Now, when he came near to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, 
and she was a widow, and much people of the city were with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that stood, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto you, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. So that compassion that Christ had for this young man that had died, he gave him back to his mother. Paul did the exact same thing, had the same compassion, and they were not a little comforted. In fact, uh, the Holy Spirit is, is uh, we know in the Greek, is the parakletos, and that word comforted is from the same Greek root. Going back to Acts 20, continuing then, and we went before to ship and sailed unto Assos, there intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed, minding himself to go afoot to there to meet Paul there. And when he met with us at Assos, we took him in and came to Mytilene. So they're working their way to Jerusalem, but they have to work through the province of Asia. And we sailed there and came the next day over against Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogilium. And the next day we came to Miletus. So they're really making, covering a lot of ground here. And, and they, you know, they're in the count to Pentecost, seven Sabbaths, but they're really moving here. They're just covering a lot of ground. And, and Luke explains why they're moving so quickly. Verse 16, for Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend time in Asia. So he's trying to avoid going through Asia. He wants to sail by Ephesus for he hurried if it were possible for him to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. So, come on, uh, Christians, please, study this passage carefully. The early church begins keeping Pentecost, and they're keeping Pentecost with one accord. And the only way they can keep Pentecost is if they're keeping the days of unleavened bread, because Pentecost is to count 50 from the day after the Sabbath that occurs during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the early church is keeping Passover, they're keeping unleavened bread, they're observing Pentecost. And if they were not observing Pentecost, they would not receive the Holy Spirit. And the whole point of the book of Acts is what happens after the church receives the Holy Spirit to see the Holy Spirit working through the body of Christ. And that when we compare what happens in the Gospels we, and we see what happens in Acts, we realize it's the same Lord. It's the same Lord. But now he's working through his body even though he's in heaven. And so now we're seeing here Paul hurrying the apostle to the Gentiles, Luke being a Gentile with him, and they're observing Passover, they're observing unleavened bread, they're observing Pentecost. How do you explain this? Except to understand how the Greeks came into the church and took it over. And they had a hatred. They were full of anti-Semitism. Read the early writings of the church fathers and, and even the Protestant fathers. Read, read uh, Martin Luther. The anti-Semitism, they hated the Jews. And because of that, they wanted to completely eliminate any trace of the Hebraic root of Christianity. 
and in so doing they've made up a completely different religion, a Greco-Roman type of Christianity based on the philosopher Plato. We need to come back to the truth of the word and, and understand that the New Testament is not separate and apart from the Old. In fact, the early church, the only Bible they had was what we call the Old Testament today. They had the Torah, they had the prophets, and they had the writings, the Psalms. That's what they taught from. And when Christ was resurrected, that's what he taught them from. So you cannot reject the Old Testament. It, it, it's an integrated whole. In fact, the New Testament is like a commentary of the Old Testament. And to properly understand it, that's why Isaiah says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And he says, you've got to be weaned from the milk. You've got to be drawn from the breast. In other words, you've got to be independent. Be like the Bereans, who when they hear something and they're not sure, they go and they search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And you can rest assured, the scriptures they were searching are in the Old Testament. Because precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. It builds. It's here a little, and it's there a little. It's line upon line. So we've got to really be mature in our approach to Scripture. So he says here, Paul is determined to be at Jerusalem for Pentecost. That's why they're covering so much ground. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So he's in Miletus. He's not going to Ephesus. Instead, he's summoning the elders of the church. And, and don't miss this either. In verse 17, he called the elders, plural, of the church, singular. So there's a church in Ephesus, but there are multiple elders in that congregation. And he's summoning all the elders to come to him and meet him in Miletus. And this is showing what we call the plurality of eldership. That you don't have in the early church this notion of a, uh, an overarching bishop who's over everybody in this sort of hierarchical structure that, again, the Greek infiltrators created based on Roman society. That what we have in the early church is this notion of plurality of eldership, where very clearly the members are to look to Jesus Christ as their shepherd. But Jesus Christ uses men as under-shepherds, and different men have different talents and abilities. And, and, and by having multiple elders, the, the elders can rely on each other's strengths and they can cover each other's weaknesses. And the members don't end up following a man. The members look to Jesus Christ as their leader and the men are just guides. So he calls the multiple elders from the singular congregation. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, you know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. So he had a lot of trials, a lot of suffering, but he's, he's calling them to, to remember how he served faithfully and humbly and with a lot of sorrow, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. So he gathered them all together in the congregation and he taught them publicly, but he also taught them individually in their homes. 
And what did he teach them? Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it's very interesting. And we know that whenever Paul went to a different city, he would find the synagogue and go there first. And when the Jews rejected it, then he would go to the Gentiles. So here we see in um, verse 21 that he testified both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. So we do say that he is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he himself declares that. But notice when he was called in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus, that in verse 15 of Acts 9, the Lord said unto him, Go your way. For he is, he is a chosen vessel unto me. So Paul is a chosen vessel unto the Lord to do what? To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So the Apostle Paul, his purpose was not just to the Gentiles, but also to the children of Israel. And that's what he was doing here in Ephesus. He preached to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Continuing in Acts 20, verse 22. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is prompting him and driving him to Jerusalem. And he's trying to get there for Pentecost. And so he says, look, I have taught you everything. I've done my best. You've seen my example. And now I'm leaving you. And I'm going bound in the, into, in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. And there is a sense here, I think, of foreboding that uh, Paul knows that there are things that are going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Of course, he's in, he's in confrontation with the Jews, and they are headquartered in Jerusalem. And so he's, he's going to Jerusalem, and he has a sense of foreboding that he's driven there, and the Holy Spirit is driving him to get there for Pentecost, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. Now, if you're Theophilus, and you're reading this, and you've just finished reading Volume 1, you're going to go back to Volume 1 and see that Jesus Christ had the very same attitude. In Luke 13, verse 33, he says, Nevertheless, I must walk today, and tomorrow, and the day following. So he's driving himself to get to Jerusalem, and he says, For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. So, so Jesus Christ is driving himself to get to Jerusalem, and in this case, he's getting there for Passover, and he's saying he, 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 it can't be that he perish outside of Jerusalem. And then he says in verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets and stones them that are sent unto you. And this is probably what Paul is looking at to say he's got to get to Jerusalem, he's probably going to be stoned. How oft I would have gathered your children together as a hen does gather her brood under her wings, but you wouldn't have it. And so here we have Paul following the footsteps of his Lord. He's bound to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what's going to happen there. He's expecting he's going to be stoned to death, according to the, 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 the past history and the word of the Lord. In fact, he, this doesn't happen. He goes from Jerusalem and ends up being uh, killed in Rome. So it's now the, the focus for him is to actually get to, to Rome after going to Jerusalem. But he's expecting to be killed in Jerusalem. Verse 22 of Acts 20. And now, behold, 
I go, well, just continue where we were at. I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. That this is, this is every city he's facing this. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. This is amazing. He is so filled with vision and, and, and a vision of the finish line. He wants to finish his course with joy. That the things that happen in the near term, this is not what concerns him. What concerns him is what happens eternally. And so none of these things upset me. And I don't even count my, my life dear to myself so that I can finish my course with joy. And this is the, the uh, key attitude of the, the successful Christian, that we can't be so consumed with our life in this life. We have to be focused on finishing our course with joy. And now behold, verse 25, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. So he, this is very clearly he's saying, I'm not coming back. This is the last time you'll see me. He's fully expecting to be killed, stoned to death, crucified, martyred in some way in Jerusalem. In fact, he'll be killed in Rome, but he's expecting it will happen in Jerusalem. And he knows he's not going to come back. And so he's saying, look, this is the way it is. So he says, therefore, I take to you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. And when he says that, it really, if you're not familiar with Ezekiel chapter 33, it has a ring of Ezekiel 33 here. So he's taking, look, I take you to record this day. I'm not going to see you again, but I, let's, let's, let's be clear. I'm pure from the blood of all men. In Ezekiel chapter 33, we see a prophecy here where he says, Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman, if when he sees the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet and takes not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him. But he that takes warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come, and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So you, O son of man, I have set you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear the word of my mouth, and warn them from me. So this is what the Apostle Paul, I believe, is alluding to when he says, look, I'm pure. I'm, I'm free from the blood of all men here because I've warned everything. In fact, he says this in the next verse, verse 27. He says, I, I, I'm, I'm pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I've given you the whole counsel of God. I haven't held anything back. And the impression that you get here is he's given them teaching that may not have been pleasant. He's given them teaching that 
maybe they didn't want to hear it, but he gave it to them anyway. And this, in fact, brings to mind the prophecy in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 9, what we see here, Isaiah 30 and verse 9, we read that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get you out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Wherefore, thus says the Holy, this, for this reason, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverse, perverseness and stay thereon. So the people of Israel have this history of not wanting to hear the prophecies of the Lord because they're difficult. So get, get rid of those difficult prophecies and instead uh, preach to us smooth things. And, and you actually see that today in much of Christianity. We have this health and wealth gospel that if you follow Christ, you're, you'll be healed. If you follow Christ, you'll be wealthy. And, and so this is the message that many of these, it's smooth. People like this message. And so they have these big mega churches, 20,000, 40,000, 50,000 people in a single congregation in a single service because it's smooth. It's, it's, it falls on the ear nicely. What Paul is saying is, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. There, there is sweet in the counsel of God, but there's also difficult. And I've given you the difficult as well. He goes on to say in verse 28, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You, plural, overseers, plural, over the flock, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So he's really saying, look, beware, take heed, pay attention to this. You, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers over the flock. You feed the church the same way I've fed you. And then he goes on to say, listen to this. For I know this, that after my departing, he says, you're not going to see me again. This is the last time. But this is what I know. After my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Not sparing. These wolves will not. They're going to tear the flock apart. And, and, and Paul, for whatever reason, he summoned the elders from Ephesus to come to him in Miletus, or come to him to Miletus, and he's just laying it down. Look, you're not going to see me again, but I'm telling you what I see in the future, and it's not good. And, and this gives me, to me, um, I just think of Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, verse 13, he says, Enter you in the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So they have an appetite and they will not spare the flock, but they appear in sheep's clothing. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men, get, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? 
Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. And so Paul is warning them here that after he leaves, he can see that wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. And that's not the worst part. The worst part is verse 30. In verse 30, listen to this. Also, of your own selves, he summoned the elders to him. He said, after I'm gone, grievous wolves, and I, these are the Greek philosophers. You know, he's in Ephesus. He knows, he knows the culture that's all around and the, the arts that they were involved in. And, and these, these philosophers are now coming into the church. Maybe some of them are already in the church. And, and he's saying to them, you know, these ravenous wolves are going to pretend to be a part of the movement. They're going to come in, but they have an appetite. And they're not going to spare the flock. But then he says this, and this is the most devastating part. Verse 30. Also, of your own selves... Of your own selves, you ministers, you elders, among you, I'm looking at you now, and you're not going to see me again, but amongst the people that are in front of me right now, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So some of the ravening wolves are already in the ministry. He says, therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. For three years I did this. I warned all of you, night and day, even weeping, I warned you about this. So I'm gone now. I can't do anything more. The blood is off my, head, my hands or my head. And now it's over to you. I'm passing the baton to you. You need to run this next leg of the race, and you need to protect the flock. You need to feed the flock. If you love me, Christ said, feed my sheep. So now he says, and this, you know, it should be no surprise if the Christianity we have today bears no resemblance to the Christianity that Paul taught. Because he's saying, look, look what's going to happen to the church. And so we shouldn't be looking at congregations that have 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 people. Christ said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. We need to find the narrow path to life, not the broad way, not, not what everybody's doing. He says, therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God. This is uh, While I'm leaving, I, all I can do now is I commend you to God, and listen to this, and to the word of his grace. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. This is the key. This is why we have to understand it's line upon line. And it's, to, it's given to them that are weaned from the breast. Them, them that are willing to dig in for themselves. And, to re, and, and if you don't have a love for truth, then God can't, then no one can help you. 
because the devil will seduce you. It's only those that love the truth and they hear something and, and it's disturbing and they think, how could this be? And they search the scriptures. They search the word of God because they just want to know what's true. And maybe there are consequences. Maybe, you know, if I don't keep Christmas, my whole family keeps going. We've got four generations who come together on Christmas Day and it's a big deal. And I realize now that Christmas is pagan. Now, do, do I love truth? Or am I afraid of the disapproval of men? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. But narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. And few be there that find it because there are so few that truly love the truth. We have to love truth and then God can lead us with his word because his word is truth. And so he says here, And now, brethren, verse 32, Acts 20, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel, unlike the ravening wolves. Paul is saying, I was with you and I, I, I have, you know, I'm not asking you to give me money. I didn't do that. I coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities. So I didn't take any money from you. Uh, I preached among you. I was here for three years. I preached to you, but I didn't take money from you. I worked for my own living. So any food that I ate, anything that I, my accommodation, I looked after it myself. And not only for myself, he says, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to them that were with me. So I looked after my party as well. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring, you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So follow my example and, and, and don't be a parasite. Don't be an, an exploiter. Don't be taking advantage of the brethren whom Christ purchased with his own blood. And so we conclude this chapter now. He says, and this is, this is devastating. When, when, you, when we really consider the magnitude of what is being said as we come to the, Acts, the, the end of Acts chapter 20, it's devastating. Let's read it together. And when he had thus spoken, these are powerful words. I've given you the whole counsel of God. I've warned you amongst your own selves. So, so not only are people going to creep in, but even amongst you ministers, there's going to be a problem. And, and the, the flock will not be spared. But I've warned you everything. And I'm, I'm pure from the blood. The blood is not on my head. It's going to be on yours. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Now that's beautiful. Verse 37 is beautiful. You know, they really love this man. And they realize they're not going to see him again. And probably what it means is they know he's going to be martyred. And so they loved him. And everybody cried deeply. And they showed a lot of affection to him. And that's beautiful. 
But verse 38 is not beautiful. Verse 38 is very concerning. So they wept sore, and they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Notice verse 38, what Luke writes. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke. Now that's good. That's so far so good. If it, you know, after he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them, and then they're sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke. That would be great if the words which he spoke are the fact that you men, amongst yourselves, you're going to allow in corrupt leaders. They're not going to spare the flock. And even amongst yourselves, evil men will arise speaking perverse things. They've got some Greek philosophers here who are going to bring in Gnosticism and bring in Greek Platonic philosophy. If these were the words they were concerned about, then this, the end, this chapter would end beautifully. But Luke goes on to explain to let us know which words they were most sorrowful for. What are they? That they should see his face no more. Oh, <laughs> wow. This is what they're most sorry for? That they're not going to see this man anymore? When he cried day and night for three years that the church is going to be destroyed? That's what they, it should have been. Sorry most of all for the words which he spoke, that amongst them, would be Judas's, that they would allow in Greek philosophers, and that the flock would not be spared. This is what they should have sorrowed most of all for. But no, what they sorrowed most of all was just the human emotion of loving this man, and they're not going to see him again. And they accompanied him unto the ship. And so we come to the end of Acts chapter 20, and I will say that this is a tragic end. That, you know, Paul did a lot of work. He he did a lot of persuasion, very effective, brought a lot of people to the Lord. And yet these elders that he has to pass the baton over to, he is already seeing the seeds of failure. And Luke ends it in a way that we can see, in fact, they, they kind of missed the point. They should be really galvanized to protect the flock when instead they're just overcome with human emotion. So we'll pause there. I'll be back in a moment. Africa Oh 
is raging. The war, the war is raging yeah. Just stop the fighting. Stop the stop the fighting. No more bombing. Just send the killing. Stop repent and obey. of the earth, humble yourselves the universe, reach out to the poor, when they knock at your door, remember the sin, the lame and the Exactly, exactly. So that was Acts chapter 20. I wonder what your thoughts are. On the Yes, yes. You know, 
is the saddest thing. And, and, and when, he, when the prophet says, even among your own kind, yes. you will encounter difficulties. I mean, I'm just putting it into my own words, right? And um, which verse was it? He said, even among yourselves. That's right. That's right. Even amongst your own selves. Remember that. Yeah. And I am even happening every single day with the congregation. And um, with different congregations, not only one congregation, yes. many congregations, you know, many churches. So, yeah, yes. I think somebody may have just joined us. Oh, I think they do. Yes, she's on. Is that you, Sylvia? Yes, this is Sylvia. Hi there, welcome. Welcome. It's, uh, I haven't met you before, but I'm, I'm glad you, you joined us. Welcome, sister. Yes, yes, this is Sylvia. You're you're in the UK. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah I was I was born in the UK and I, I visit London quite frequently. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Sister Avenel was just sharing her thoughts and uh, she was looking at uh, Acts twenty verse thirty, uh, where the apostle writes that also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And he's speaking to the ministers. Remember that the brethren are in Ephesus. He has summoned the ministers to leave Ephesus and come to him in Miletus. And so he's just speaking to the elders. And he's saying, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things. And Sister Avenel was just saying how that just tr troubled her. Yes, yes. Um, because I see in, in most congregations, most, most churches where I attend or have a... Yeah, it's very troubling. Um, very troubling. Yeah. Um, I'm mm -hmm. not I have a question. A very... Um, I don't know if I can say important. Yes, it is important. Pertaining to the high holy days, right? Yes. Um, are they all, are all the days are they all days of obligation? Um, are they considered Shabbat or, like, for example, Feast of Trumpets and Feast of Tabernacles? And the reason why I am asking that question is because um, I was in the Christian church in Toronto for over 28 years. And um, when I left the church, most of my friends, um, up to this day, they tell me, oh, you have recovered you, and you, <laughs> you are going back to the law, and you, you're keeping all these seeds. And the thing is, uh, all I can say to them, but you keep seeds too, but not the last seeds. The Easter, and Christmas, yes. and the feast of all saints, and the feast of all souls, and the feast of this. I said, you keep seeds too, yes. but we keep the feasts of God, the God appoints seeds. Don't tell me. And some seeds more important than others, say for example, Feast of Trumpets and Feast of Tabernacles. Yes, what I would say there is the feasts that are outlined in Leviticus 23, these are the feasts of the Lord. The Jews have other feasts. They have Hanukkah, they have the Feast yes. of Purim. You yes. know, these are Jewish feasts, and, and they have every right to observe those feasts. But those feasts are not required for others to keep. Here in Leviticus 23, the Lord speaks to Moses to say, these are my feasts, and they are, exactly. they are his Sabbaths. 
They are his. In fact, in Genesis, um, Genesis one, when he is when we we have Moses uh, recounting the creation, he he says that um, he creates the sun and the moon for the appointed feasts. It, it, the, the English translation says for seasons, but the 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 Hebrew is mo'adim, which is the same word used in Leviticus twenty three when he says these are my feasts. So he outlines what these Mo'adim are, which is what the, so the sun and moon are in the sky for the purpose of letting us know the appointed times of the Lord. And they're all outlined here in Leviticus 23. And I really love your point, though. That I, I love your point, Sister Avanel, that, you know, everybody keeps feasts. But, you know, they're keeping Halloween, they're keeping uh, Valentine's Day, they're keeping Easter, they're keeping Christmas. So everybody keeps feasts. But these are the feasts of the Lord. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And it's and it's very clear when you read when you when you read the book of Acts, it's obvious that the church is observing these feast days. Even even the Gentile church. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sister uh, Sylvia, did you have any thoughts or yeah, sorry. Um, I just wanted to reach out to Sylvia and see your thoughts or impressions on the, the study today. Um, I, I can just about hear what you're saying, actually, very, very low. Um, yes, I find it very interesting, your, um, your studies. Um, this is the first time I've been in. Um, I just wanted to ask about something other than I mentioned. Sure. About the, the feast. So, most of these other feasts that are associated with uh, Christian churches, they're all pagan, as you say. Correct. That's right. Because, again, we see the uh, Greek philosophers coming in, and when Constantine uh, established Christianity as the official religion in the Roman Empire, he then was involved in something called syncretism, where he wanted the pagans to feel comfortable, wanted to, wanted to unite the whole empire. And so, and so this is where we see the origins of bringing in the pagan celebrations, but putting Christian language around them. And so the pagans were celebrating Ishtar, they were worshipping on Sunday, they had their Christmas, and so he just put pagan language, uh, Christian language around these pagan days. And that's where we see a different form of Christianity emerging than what the early church observed. I think he asked if they're okay. Did you ask if they're okay still there? No, I'm not, I'm not asking if they're okay. I'm just asking so that they are all pagan. I mean, I've, I've, I'm not new to this argument about Christmas and Easter being taken. Right. And it's very easy. It's very easy. Anybody who, again, has that love for truth, it's very easy to, to prove and to discover the origin of these days. You just One just has to say, okay, I'm going to go and look into this. In fact, in fact, when I was a young man, I was uh, 16 years old, and my mother was working at the, this huge uh, reference library, and she brought home one day an article that she had that showed the origins of Christmas. And I read it, and uh, I was just blown away. And from that day, at 16 years old, since today, I have never celebrated. I just read it, looked into it, realized it was pagan, never touched it again. But other people, they don't care. They think, oh, it, you know... God, God doesn't mind when, in fact, he really does mind. <laughs> yes, and the thing is, like, the fact is he was born, you know, and we are celebrating him. 
Yeah, that's true. But nowhere, nowhere in the Bible do we see the Lord ever saying, celebrate my birth. In fact, we see the exact opposite. He says to celebrate and observe my death until I come. And that's the whole point of the Passover. So, yes. so, so celebrating his birth is doing the exact opposite of what he asks us to do. Um, you said something about um, the love for the truth. I think you said love for the truth. Yes. Love you to God, right? Yes. What's the Yeah. Um, it is the Holy Spirit that draws man into Him. Am I correct? Well, Am I no, well, I would say it the other way. I'd say that it's the Father. If you look at um, John 6 and verse 44, he says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So it's really the Father that initiates this whole process. But he is. Well, we have to. There's a you know we have to be baptized and receive the laying on of hands to to receive the Holy Spirit. But even prior to receiving the Holy Spirit, there is a, a calling that He will give us, and we have to respond to that calling. And if we do not if we do not love the truth, then Satan is going to put obstacles in our path, and we're going to be seduced by those obstacles. If we love the truth, when we receive this calling, we're going to pursue it earnestly. And then we'll come to the point of being baptized, having the hands laid on us, and then receiving the Holy Spirit. And and look look where our society is heading. So we've rejected Jesus Christ. You know, if you used to go back to beginning perhaps in the 60s, you could even argue a little bit before that, but let's certainly look at the 60s. And, and since the, every decade since then, we've just been getting worse and worse. And so this rejection of Christ, it's not working. Our, our children are committing suicide in epidemic numbers. People are depressed. Everybody's on medication, yeah. depression medication. Marriages are falling apart. Uh, people are committing uh, adultery, abortion is out of control, society is falling apart. And, and so hopefully people are beginning yeah. to see this and saying, no, this is not right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, you, say you can go ahead and ask any questions that you want, I think. Maybe uh, well, I, don't, I don't have any questions either. Yeah. While you're thinking there, just uh, Second Thess I'm just looking at Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse ten, and he writes, "With all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, why do they perish? Because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved." And so this this love of the truth is critical. And hopefully, you know, if people hear things on this study that maybe upset them, maybe provoke them, and I have never heard this before, hopefully they have a love for the truth. And they're like, I'm going to prove Pastor Adrian yeah. wrong. I'm going to go and I'm going to research this. And if they love the truth, God can work with them. If they don't care about the truth, yeah. then they can be deceived. Which verse did you read from? This was uh, Second Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse Second, ten. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Chapter Chapter two and verse ten. 
Very good. Well, I really enjoyed this, and thanks so much uh, for joining, and hopefully we can do this again. Uh, next week we'll be on to Acts chapter 21. So just every every week we just cover another yes. chapter, God willing. Yes. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us, Sister Sylvia, Sister Avenel. Thanks so much. God willing, we'll see you next week. Have a great week. Okay. All right. God bless. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.